He is various kinds of professor. Uh, he is an assistant professor in the Department of Neuropsychiatry here. He is the chief psychiatric consultant for the multiple sclerosis and transverse myelitis clinics. Those are forms of central nervous system injury and inflammation that are traditionally more associated with neurology than psychiatry. And he is an attending physician in the HIV AIDS psychiatry service. So he has experience with infectious disease as well and its overlap with psychiatry. Today, I was hoping to talk with Dr. Kaplan about esketamine the new hotness in psychiatry. And so, Dr. Kaplan, what is esketamine? Um, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, first of all, Cody, I think what you're doing is fabulous, getting this out there, providing education so that people can stay on the cutting edge. Because as you know, data comes in fast and furious, and it's just hard to keep up with all the new stuff. So I think this is great. So what is esketamine? Was that the question? That was the question. Okay, so esketamine. Esketamine is the left-handed molecule of ketamine. So that begs the question, what is ketamine mm -hmm. with left-handed? So first of all, the left-handed molecule is just like citalopram comes in S-citalopram, uh, a left-handed molecule. So you have Celexa and Lexapro. There are molecules like ketamine, like citalopram, which can come in left and right-handed sizes or, or forms, really, which is just like having gloves. And you can't put your left-handed glove on your right hand. And so it means that there are certain types of molecules that will fit better into some pockets. And esketamine ends up having a higher affinity for the NMDA receptor, which is believed to be one of the central mechanisms through which it works. So what is ketamine? Ketamine is a drug that has been around for a long time. It's on the World Health Organization list of top 100 medicines that have been invented. And it's traditionally been used as an anesthetic. And what makes it really unique is that and why the World Health Organization has given it so much cred is because it has the ability to induce anesthesia and put people to sleep if necessary when you're off in the bush of Africa without having the ability to intubate people. So it, it has a very low rate of respiratory suppression, of blocking people from breathing. So ketamine had been a really great drug as an anesthetic. It does, just like opiates are really great if you're in terrible pain, but we have a current opiate epidemic on our hands, which is the topic of another conversation, but it can also, these are addicting drugs, opiates, and so they can be used for recreational purposes, and this has caused a big problem with uh, overdoses and deaths in this country. Ketamine doesn't have that problem with overdoses and the like, and in fact, it is not nearly as commonly abused, but it does have the potential to make people hallucinate, and what people will probably be more familiar with is PCP. So PCP, fencyclidine or PCP, is structurally a bit similar 
to ketamine, and they both work through the NMD receptor right blocking it, as does dextromethorphan. So kids who that's why you can't check out cough medicine yeah. and you know, because of robo tripping, if you get enough dextromethorphan and you kids don't try that at home, by the way. But in any case, the issue is at high doses, it has been a club drug. We're talking something on the order of 0.01% of emergency room visits are due to this. But, you know, particularly in clubs, people have, have abused ketamine as they abuse benzos and opiates. So it does have that hanging over its head. It's called special K. Yeah. In the, in the street parlance. But, but what was found really in the last, I'd say, 20 years, it has been progressively growing as a story that when used at doses that are a tenth the dose used for its anesthetic, or you know, between a fifth and a tenth, but certainly you know, at a vastly lower dose than is used for knocking people out, or for recreational purposes, it turns out it has a antidepressant effect. And this was first found out actually going back into the 90s. And then Yale did a lot of people at Yale, like Santa Cora, did a lot of work early on demonstrating in humans that it had antidepressant effects. And since then, it kind of had ridden a wave where Janssen picked it up to their credit because... Again, it's not a new chemical entity, and so it's only going to have so much life to it. But they picked it up and invest millions of dollars, and as of March of 2018, got it approved for use for treatment-resistant depression. So that's what esketamine is. Nice. And that leads into the next question. Why should people care about esketamine coming on the scene? I mean, to play devil's advocate, we do have a lot of existing antidepressant treatments, including ECT, transcranial magnetic stimulation, a huge number of drugs at this point. Yeah, those are all great questions. And essentially, the reason why those of us in academia, anyway, who kind of spend our time trying to think about new treatments and the like, are so excited about S-ketamine. And by the way, the S-ketamine version is particularly relevant because it can be given as intranasal. So you don't have to have it IV as it's normally given. It's to develop the ability to give it intranasally. But the reason why S-ketamine is so exciting is because it's the first drug since the 1950s when we began developing antidepressants, either working you know, through MA. OIs, you know, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, to tricyclics, to SSRIs, to SNRIs, they all work through monoamines, which means serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine are, you know, the big three. And those are all G-coupled signaling, which means they, they bind receptors on the outside of neurons and they, they transduce a, a signal that slowly works its way through a neuron. And what's really unusual about ketamine is it works at a different kind of receptor, receptor that's an ion channel, NMDA receptor. So first of all, it immediately changes the activity of the neuron because neurons are electrochemical. And when ions flow into the, into the neurons, that activates a electrochemical discharge that goes down the neuron. So rapid acting, and that is what's found with ketamine. It works within hours to days as opposed to our current treatments that don't even begin to work until at least a week after taking them. So rapid onset, that's number one. Two is it 
seems to work in treatment-resistant depression, for which it was approved. Now, you just named a number of the other treatments that are approved for those people who are electropenic, don't have enough electricity. Those are approved for treatment-resistant, but the only drug that has been approved by the FDA for treatment-resistant depression is Symbiax, which is a combination of olanzapine and antipsychotic and Prozac or fluoxetine. And, you know, that has all sorts of side effects potentially using an atypical antipsychotic. So the way I kind of think about it is it's its closest treatment cousin is ECT. Because ECT can certainly work when nothing else has worked, and it can work quickly, meaning we see this in the hospital all the time. People just after a couple of treatments already begin to see changes. And generally, you know, two by two weeks, they've gotten all the way well. And so it's similar. The difference is that it's not approved for people who are psychotic. ECT is great for psychotic depression because it potentially can induce psychotic symptoms in some people, not commonly, but it can. But it also more rarely causes cognitive impairment, which is a more common side effect of ECT. And a lot of people don't want to go to ECT if they can do it as an outpatient. So I think that the real way of thinking about it is suddenly we have a treatment kind of on the order of ECT is what it looks like now, where it can work quickly, work where other treatments have failed, and and can have, you know, really mostly short-term side effects as opposed to, you know, causing cognitive change and the like. Okay. And I can certainly see how an intranasal drug is going to be a lot more palatable to a lot of people than ECT, which at some point in the future, we're hoping to speak about that at greater length, that the stigma is a little bit out of proportion with what it actually is. But still, it can be a little bit scary, the idea of putting electricity through your brain, even if it is safe and effective in a lot of cases. Absolutely. But interestingly you say, that you say that, you know, because once people actually get the treatment, it becomes very old school for them. But thinking about it, you mm-hmm. know, it's done with anesthesia, as you know, you've performed it and are quite wise in the way of this type of treatment, but ECT... But, but, you know, it's done with anesthesia and people get knocked out. So once people do it, it becomes routine for them. But I do agree with you. I would be, if I didn't know anything about it, had never seen it, I'd be quite anxious. And the interesting thing is because ketamine has kind of this, or S-ketamine has this reputation as causing, you know, people to hallucinate. So, you know, again, kind of like ECT, but a drug version. People are a little anxious when they first try it. And then after they try it, they say, oh, that's it. No big deal. With these doses, you mentioned they're a lot lower than recreational doses. Do people experience any of these hallucination phenomena or altered states of consciousness, or is this a lower grade? Yeah, so it's a great question. And really, uh, on the order of 30 to 40% of people will have some psychomimetic or dissociative symptoms. And those are just fancy words, you know, so that we can get paid money as doctors. We come up with the fancy words. But basically what it means is that people can have dream-like states. They think they're in a dream. Okay. And they think that the, they can't tell that they're, you know, they say, wait, am I dreaming? Are you real? Are we? Is this going on now? That's a little disconcerting. And we've done this with hundreds of patients. Rather, we've done hundreds of dosings in dozens of patients here at Hopkins. We were part of the phase two and phase three studies to get S-ketamine approved here at Hopkins and multi-center studies that were done. And so we had a lot of experience. And I can tell you, there was one person who got it and he didn't change a bit. Like you could not tell he got anything, but his mood improved, which was quite interesting because the side effects are not correlated with the effects, which by itself 
is probably telling us something. And it ranged to, we had one woman who swore there were lemons. She could smell lemons. Every time she did it, there were lemons. Someone else kind of green out the window of trees was much more intense. And another person thought he heard people talking outside the door when there was no one outside the door. So it had a full range of side effects. But I can tell you that there wasn't a single patient we had who requested that we go down in the dose. That was an option in the study because um, the people we were treating had such bad depression and they really wanted to get the maximum benefit from it. And so, you know, everybody tolerated. And the good thing to know about the treatment as well is that it plateaus by the third treatment. So the first treatment, the side effects are the worst. The second, about half as bad. By the third, you've plateaued. Now, by the way, the plateau isn't at the level of placebo. It's not nothing, but it's far less in terms of the side effects. So yes, the side effects that you hear that are quoted are really for the first, maybe the second dosing, and then it becomes much more uh, tolerable. And in fact, the worst symptoms that people get are nausea. That tends to be the worst. And I would have to say that we gave, I'm going to guess, 60 to 80% of people at some time needed some Zofran or you know Reglan or something to settle their stomach. So you know, nausea is something that comes with it in people who had it. We premedicated and they tolerated it well. Yeah, and the way the brain gut axis works, I think anytime you're affecting serotonin, you've got a chance of screwing up the GI tract pretty badly. Absolutely, and you know, not just serotonin. As you say, you know, there's a third as many neurons I'm told in the GI tract, just as you say, as in the brain. So I think it's an excellent point. Yeah, I think you're right. So aside from the nausea and the dissociative side effects, are there any other significant side effects people should be prepared for if they're thinking about going down this road in the future? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you what, what it tends to be people do well mm. as long as they have a quiet room, you know, with someone there, uh, certainly for the first couple of doses. You can have the door open after that and, you know, you know, have someone outside maybe watching a couple of people, but having someone there to talk you down if you do have side effects in the first one. And then people just kind of chill out and have a conversation. What's interesting is that the nausea is associated with it, so people don't like to eat generally until it wears off. Now, that's the key, which is to know that it reaches the side effects, as bad as they may sound, reach a peak at 40 minutes and are gone by two hours. It's not like the other medicines we take where, you know, if you take Wellbutrin and it's stimulating, you're stimulated every day. This is just for two hours and then it's gone, you get side effects that peak at 40 minutes. And interestingly, the one thing we found that works is, you know, just to have people in a nice kind of calm area where there's not a lot of noise, you know, so you can keep track of what's going on. Some people just fall asleep and Enya, I know this is, I'm plugging a particular, but it's funny, I went to a conference where everybody who was, you know, doing one of these studies for Janssen, a startup conference, and everybody agreed that somehow we all independently found Enya. It's just a kind of a calming, nice music. So something to remember, if you have this done, bring some Enya along. It's very relaxing. And for some reason, that, that's kind of the right thing. And then by two hours, people were hungry and they wanted to eat something. And that's how it went. So, you know, in general, very well tolerated. The main side effects are... You know, the GI side effects, sometimes this, this dream-like dissociative. Sometimes, you know, maybe they hear something, smell something, much less common. 
And other than that, you know, anything can cause anything, but for the most part, it's well tolerated. Okay. Well, it definitely sounds like a reasonable risk for somebody who's got treatment-resistant depression. Absolutely. Okay. So you answered some of these questions indirectly in terms of why people should care about esketamine, it sounds like, by working through a different mechanism and being apparently useful in people with treatment-resistant disease. It offers an avenue for people who haven't responded before. And in terms of what it means for patients, it sounds like people who have failed one or more trials of a conventional treatment, when would you say will be the point at which it's time to start thinking about esketamine in the future? So that's a really good question, and I'm glad you brought that up. So right now, the approval is by the FDA for treatment-resistant depression, which was defined in the studies and therefore defined by the FDA in the approval as having two or more treatments that were adequate treatments. Adequate means they were at least six weeks and they were at a dose of the antidepressant that was sufficient to actually get someone well. Not like the starting, not 150 of Wellbutrin, maybe 300, just a decent dose, mid-range or, or plausible dose of an antidepressant for six weeks, two of them. There's a little confusion when the company had started. They said it had to be in two different classes, like an SSRI or an SNRI. And then they changed it, that it could be any two antidepressants. Because there's not really a lot of data to say that if you don't respond to Prozac, that you won't respond to Lexapro. Yeah, that happens all the time that someone responds to one and not the other. Exactly. And so that's the way it should go. But the really good point you bring up is what's the criteria and why that makes a difference is already the... The issue is who's going to pay for it? When is it going to get paid for? And the insurance companies are already insisting that that meet criteria of treatment resistant as to the vast majority of the insurance companies seem to be saying just any two treatments that did not that someone did not respond to. But you know, it's interesting because the company just recently finished up and we were part of these studies as well, uh, phase two, phase three studies for st- to treat suicide with ketamine, or S-ketamine, I'm sorry. And so there might be a new indication for, for people who are suicidal because, you know, other than lithium, none of our drugs actually have shown to, you know, decrease suicidality. So that's, that's not available yet. That may not make it through the FDA, but that is another potential indication that, you know, um, if you're independently wealthy, it's great. You can get the treatment at whatever you want through an appropriate clinic. But other than that, the insurance company has to approve it. It has to be treatment resistant. Okay. And uh, on the subject of suicide, I've seen some popular press articles, but I haven't really dived into the literature on this. But it sounded like there was some concern for increased suicide risk with ketamine treatment. Are you aware of this or where that may have come from or if it's got any merit? I do know where that came from. So what you have to realize is there was something on the order of a thousand people in these studies. Let's say 600, I mean, I'd have to check to get the specific numbers, but say 600 got the drug when all was said and done because many of these most were double-blinded. Well, I should say as double-blind as you can get with this kind of treatment, which means they split the people who were monitoring the safety of the patient knew what the patient was getting. But the people who were monitoring the effect of the drug, whether their depression got better or not, 
were blinded as to whether, and they weren't allowed to talk to anybody else in the study. They weren't allowed to look at the records. If they looked at the records of the patient, they were no longer allowed to be part of that study. So it was really quite held to the best they could do. But of course, a placebo isn't going to have the same side effects. So in any case, they tried as best they could to, to get that effect. Say about 1,000 people, 600, 650, who got the drug, the rest placebo. And out of all those patients, there were three people who committed suicide and three people who died from other causes. So that's a relative, I mean, given the fact that these were patients, many of them who were selected for being suicidal for all the, you know, for the indications for suicidality, that's actually a relatively low number. Now, granted, it is a tragedy that anybody killed themselves. But when you're specifically targeting people who are at the greatest risk of harming themselves, and trying to get a drug approved to prevent that from happening, you know, it's you're you're looking for people who are at risk, and therefore you're terrified, honestly, when you're doing these studies that that might happen. Of the three people who completed suicide, all three of those people ended up being on ketamine, S-ketamine, as opposed to placebo. So okay. you can say, well, three versus none on the placebo. But it was 1,000 people, 600 people, so it didn't reach statistical significance. And what was really distressing was that uh, they looked into the specifics, the FDA looked into the specifics of the people who completed suicide, and one of them, it was, you know, they were seen on Wednesday, reported not being suicidal at all on Friday, they killed themselves. And again, it's tragic and you know we can have a whole different conversation about how it is we're going to identify people better than we can now because the rates of suicide have gone up 30 percent in this country in the last 15 years it's an epidemic unto itself but what i will tell you is this it's too early to tell if that's a real signal or not but i think it's prudent to be cautious about when people are coming off this treatment. And again, it's not been out long enough for us to have, you know, say a thousand people got, 600 people got treated. We need 600,000 to know, or, you know, 60,000 at least to know what some of the less common side effects are. But perhaps if there was a signal, the concern would be that maybe people did well when they got on it, but maybe coming off of it was harder or something to be cautious about. Now, there's no evidence for what I just said, but I think it's prudent to at least be cautious given the fact that the three people who completed suicide were all on the drug. But as of now, there's no evidence to say that that was statistically, it could have just been, you know, that you flipped a coin and it came up heads three times. It literally could yeah. be that. Okay. That makes sense. Another question I had was, so you were saying that the antidepressant effect of ketamine has been in the zeitgeist to some extent since like the 90s, right? And It was in animals that they saw this rapid effect. And then in 2000, Santa Cora at Yale published effects in humans. And that's when the ball really got rolling. So it's really, you know, the last 18, 19 years. Okay. And at, in that time, there have been these ketamine clinics, and it sounds like they've ranged from being run by sort of fly-by-night services all the way up to, you know, well-meaning, well-informed people giving ketamine under safe conditions. How does the current approval of S-ketamine and this process change the scene given that 
10 years ago, somebody who really wanted to get a ketamine infusion for depression would be able to, assuming they had the money. Yeah. So great question, as all of these are. So what I can tell you is that the fact that clinics literally popped up in cities around the United States, I, I don't know the final count, but dozens, I'd say, of these ketamine clinics where people were hooked up to IV ketamine because before you could take it intranasally so it'd get absorbed across, you know, the, the nasal passages ways right into the blood circulation, in fact, serving the brain, some of it. And so the, the only way you could get it was IV, and these clinics got set up. These clinics were treating people who were depressed without any question, and they were using an FDA-approved drug in an FDA-approved way, IV ketamine, because that's how it was used as an anesthetic. But this was for an off-label indication. Now, you know as well as I do that probably, I'm going to guess, 40% of the treatments we use are on-label, and I'm going to guess 60% are off-label just because... You're not going to be able to do all the studies for millions of dollars to prove that like an old drug yeah. um, works the way you think it works. But the problem is, again, with a brand new indication for a drug, it was worrisome that people were getting recruited for this, these studies and not followed in a very careful way. However, I am sympathetic to the fact that it indicates just how terrible depression is that people will pay you know, $400 a dose to go and get an IV dose at these clinics. And you're absolutely right. They were done by maybe some fly-by-night, but the two that I know of, one in Baltimore, one in L.A., I had spoken to the people who had done the treatment just along the way, and they were very smart, very enlightened people, very familiar with the use of ketamine. But I would say that the important thing to know is that still, because of the issues raised like the suicidality and stuff, the FDA approved the drug and Janssen and the FDA both agreed that in order to make sure it's not abused and that we follow you know, carefully what's done, there's what's called a REMS program, okay. which is a risk management program in place. So everybody who's going to get treated is going to have you know, a form filled out and it's going to be sent to the company. And if anything happens, it'll be sent to the FDA. And so everybody will be followed closely. So we get the data we need for a new drug to make sure it's doing what we think it's doing. Because you know, in their time, leeches were a good idea, but they just didn't work. But everybody who was anybody back then used leeches. Yeah. So we just have to make sure that these drugs really work the way we think they're working. And you don't get that kind of REMS and FDA behind your back and backup. Um, and you don't get insurance payments either. But I think it speaks to how terrible depression is and how even after four treatments in the STAR-D, there were 33% of people who had no significant response. So they're just a, you know, a third of people just need something because nothing that they've tried work, that's that's a really a big issue. And for those of you unfamiliar, the STAR-D trial is one of the landmark antidepressant studies that essentially established the effectiveness of most of the mainline drugs that we use today. Was it limited to SSRIs or did they have, I don't remember well, if they, they had, had tricyclics and all that. Too. Okay. And so okay. It was very much, but you're right, it started with SSRIs. All right. So it sounds like with the FDA approval of S-ketamine along with the more convenient, less invasive delivery system of intranasal use, this is going to open a lot of doors and insurance companies will be more willing to pay given that it will be an on-label use. What do you think is going to happen with respect to the accessibility of this treatment? Like right now, I think you can only get it in 
academic centers, if anywhere. But how do you see that changing in the next couple of years? So not just the next couple of years, in the next, hopefully, couple of months. So what has happened is this is, and this is going to be a little complicated for those people listening, but anybody who cares about it wants to know the answers to all your questions, Cody. And and so it's a very important question, which is it was approved in March, and we are still trying to get a clinic up and running here in Hopkins. There is no center in Baltimore yet. So Shepherd's in the same boat that we are in Maryland, the three you know, although Shepherd and Maryland are together, the big academic uh, hospitals here, because what's so unique here is it is patient-administered, so patients give it to themselves. But because of the risk management program, it has to be under the supervision of a healthcare provider. So they have to come in, receive it in a clinic somewhere. And... And because this is unique, we've never had a treatment. You know, we've had treatments that people have to come in and get a shot from a nurse or a doctor or surgery or anything. But for a patient to have to come in and sit there and give themselves a drug when the you know, clinician's watching, the real issue is um, how do we convince the people who count beans, you know, the bean counters, to invest in giving us a clinic, you know, cost just, you know, renting space for a restaurant or anything costs money. So we have to rent space. We have to have, you know, doctors and nurses available to watch the patients to be there. And so right now it's unclear what what kind of coverage the insurance is going to provide. We are very fortunate here at Hopkins because we have gotten approval of uh, our chairman and one of the vice chairs to put a clinic together here, even though we cannot give them uh, a business plan that has any specifics to it because, you know, we don't know what the insurance will cover for clinicians' time. And, you know, we don't want to pass huge costs on to patients. But as soon as we can, we're going to get it going. The place has already been chosen. We hope in the next couple of months to be, you know, by October, we hope to be up and running. But the reason why Hopkins and the powers that be have made the decision here before we know yet what, you know, whether it's going to be a money loser and we're going to have people who are working for negative money for for costing the institution, but the decision was made that there is no other treatment like this, and so we have to provide it for patients who have depressions for which nothing else has worked, and so they've made the decision to at least give us a year to see if we can do it in a way that, I mean, this is not a cash cow. This is just seeing if we can just break even and get paid for the time and the space. Well, and it sounds like it, it'll really depend on whether people are comparing it against ECT or comparing it against medication because it's going to be vastly more expensive than prescribing Wellbutrin or something like that. But I know ECT requires two attending physicians and various staff members and a lot of nursing care in the recovery room. So I have to imagine that running a ketamine clinic would be comparable or less expensive per treatment than ECT would be. Much less expensive. But the problem is that when you're doing ECT, you're delivering something using a machine that could electrocute you if you don't know what you're doing. Now, no one's ever been electrocuted because it's very it has all these safe gaps put in place. But here we're watching the patient give it to themselves. So you can there are specific codes for people who have been trained and are knowledgeable in the use of these electrical machinery. There's no precedent for having clinicians just sit there and watch a patient for two hours. Well, 
This bodes well for the psilocybin work. I think if they're going to get any of these other novel treatments in use, they're going to need this kind of infrastructure because there are similar concerns. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't even thought of that. I think this is trailblazing. I think you're absolutely right. So you mentioned before about Special K and how ketamine is a drug of abuse. Did you encounter any specific pushback as you were going through the clinical trials process as you were beginning to move this into what will be routine practice by the end of the year, it sounds like, in terms of people's concerns about it being a controlled substance, that people would seek it out for reasons other than its original indication, anything like that? Right. Well, so it, it's a great question, and I would say yes and no. Yes, clinicians were worried about it. I think the clinicians are more worried about getting patients addicted to the drugs that they're using than our patients worried about it because the patients have a depression that hasn't responded usually to, you know, at least two things, but often four or more treatments. And we have people in our study who hadn't responded to four treatments with medicines and ECT. So, you know, nothing had worked and esketamine did work for them. So, So the issue really is the patients are willing to take the risk. In fact, as you pointed out, they're willing, if they have money, to pay three, $400 a dose just to get an IV. But yes, there was some pushback from colleagues who were like, wait a minute, this is, you know, are we sure this is safe, etc. But again, the whole reason why, and I'm glad you brought it up, the, the risk, the whole reason why there is the risk management program is because it takes three canisters to take one full dose and that one full dose is just enough to dose you for that day you get twice a week for one month and then you switch if you respond to that then you switch to once a week and generally you go once a week for a total of you know another month or two months generally the approval by the insurance is probably going to be about three months but only for those people who respond and so really it, they're so, I mean, it's a third of a dose in a canister. So you can imagine you'd have to be like Santa Claus with a huge bag full of these things if you wanted to get high. Yeah. Because just to get a tenth of the dose of an anesthetic, you need three canisters. And so, you know, it's, and each one, each canister has to come from a pharmacy, which is part of the risk management program, not just any pharmacy that is signed up and filling out all this paperwork and it has to be delivered on the day of treatment to the clinic and the clinic has to give it right then and give the canister back. So there are so many in place things. Now, the other issue is our people who are going to use this go, wow, you know, that was amazing. Let's go find some, you know, I, I think people who are depressed and have serious depression for the most part, they're not looking to get a new drug. They're looking, but, but, the, the one really important point that you underscore is what happens when we begin to give this to people who have substance use problems. We have not done that specifically to avoid the risk that you're talking about. But, you know, people who use drugs get very depressed and sometimes to get them off the drugs, you have to treat the depression. So eventually I think we'll get there. But so far we don't know about that. Yeah. And I mean, based on what I've seen in the substance use units on in the Meyer building and down in the emergency department here at Hopkins, ketamine is not one of the drugs that's sending people to the hospital I mean, in withdrawal. How many people do I know who was a PCP addict 
I mean, it's just not, I mean, I just don't think that they'll find that many people. Again, people go to clubs, there's clubbing, and some people, you know, who do clubbing really like, you know, to try some, all sorts of new things. So it's not that it's an insane idea that there could be an abuse potential, but it, let's put it this way, it's far less abused, this whole class of medicines, than the benzodiazepines or the opiates, which are everywhere. Yeah, and you made a good point about the sort of stewardship and the fact that there's like a chain of supply. People know where things are. You have to sign off on them. Pharmacists are all the time bringing up things that could be abused. We've got benzodiazepines that are sold on the street that we need in the hospital, and opiates and all these kinds of things are used all the time in settings with a similar amount of supervision. So I can't imagine that it's going to be something beyond our ability to manage. Yeah, I agree. Do you think that this is going to find its way into emergency department care of depression? Because the one huge difference between this and most of our existing treatments, with the possible exception of ECT, is its rapidity of onset. As you said, a proper trial of most antidepressant drugs is four to six weeks because it takes up to that to really see an effect. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, You've done your homework. I think because when it first looked like a company was going to pick it up, the company was, Jansen was looking for a way of treating people, but treating people to transition them from, um, you know, being really depressed and suicidal to having a rapid response while they were also on another drug. I, I, I think I should have, I'm remiss for not mentioning this. The approval is for esketamine plus a new antidepressant. Okay. Plus, you got to be on an antidepressant as well. And new being you've, and you've been recently you know, put on not something that wasn't working. So, and the idea is that you know, it would kick in before the one to two weeks to even start. Generally, antidepressants take six weeks to reach a maximum effect of any given dose. But since esketamine works in hours to days, you know, you get a rapid response. And that would be perfect for the ER. I think what happened was when the company was beginning to think about how best to do it, and then they realized that it not only treated people quickly, but it treated people who didn't respond to anything else, that when they came off, that was, I think, another, and I'm just trying to read the mind of the company, one of the four main trials that got this approved, you only need two uh, positive trials. They had four trials, three of which were positive. And one of them was, you know, to be on esketamine versus placebo after you'd had a response and see how long you went before you relapsed. And people went, you know, hundreds of days longer than the 80 days, you know, I think it was a couple hundred days before they relapsed on average compared to 80 days on the placebo. So um, being on the medicine, well, either being on the medicine really sustains your benefit or coming off is not good. Yeah, it's hard to know for sure. So once they got that indication for treatment resistant for longer term use, it avoided the problem of how do you set up in an emergency room to get someone to have a room where you can put people in and give them the dose. And we've got our own psych wing of the emergency room here where we consult but so really they haven't gone for that indication um and they there is no plans as of now to figure out how to do it i think it's a great idea but i think the transition probably would be to have people 
first figure out how to use this in the, in the outpatient clinic and then work towards the inpatient clinic and possibly the emergency room. I think it's a good point. You know, one thing also I wanted to mention is that it is a treatment that in humans, everybody looks at the NMDA receptor for how it works. But in all of the animal studies, when you look up lower doses of, of ketamine, they all show anti-inflammatory effects. Hmm. So again, no one's 100% sure exactly the mechanism through which this drug works for its antidepressant effects. There are some theories, but you know it's hard to know unambiguously just because it works in animals a certain way doesn't mean it's going to work in man the same way yeah. or women. And so in any case, even in people who take it, humans who take it, and when we've measured levels of inflammation, what are called cytokines in the bloodstream, the cytokines come down. Oh, wow. So it does have anti-inflammatory properties. Having said that, our SSRIs also have anti-inflammatory properties, believe it or not. It's just not commonly talked about or thought about. But in any case, what I do is study immune-mediated depression. And so I'm very interested in the application for autoimmune diseases like MS, but rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, etc. Because I think it, that could be a real indication for you know, trying to see uh, when people have exacerbations, for instance, with MS, they get steroids, which can cause their moods to go either really high or really low. It'd be great to have something that is an anti-inflammatory that help with their mood. So I think that this is also kind of the next horizon for this. But I agree, at the beginning there was talk about the emergency room, but I think the logistics just got too hard. And once the effects were so sustained, they realized they didn't have to get people off. The original trials only went a month, hmm. and then they stopped, because it was just supposed to get them onto that antidepressant. And once that kicked in, they'd get off the... Uh, the uh, S-ketamine, but that's not how it worked out. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention with respect to S-ketamine? There is someone who, a very big person in the field of psychiatry research, who's an emeritus chairman um, out West, has a, you know, done amazing work with his career and done a, an amazing amount of research, but has had a real chip on his shoulder for reasons I'm not 100% sure about this drug. So he was concerned about it not being double blind, which, you know, I understand, but they did the best they could in blinding, as we talked about earlier. But he maintained that this is a drug that's working just through opiate receptors. Mm. And so people will, if you read something in the literature, people will find that there are publications out there in the lay press that say, oh, you got to be worried about this. It's really just working like an opiate. And, and that's not true. I will tell you clinically, that's just not true. We've had opiates for 7,000 years. And I can tell you, and you know this as well, lots of people have taken Oxycontin, MS cotton, tramadol. Nobody has had this kind of rapid response and sustained for several days just with a single dose, but that continues on with opiates. In fact, opiates cause depression, if anything. Yeah. And so this is, you know, just in case people hear through the grapevine, oh my God, that's just an opiate. It really isn't. In fact, it doesn't have particularly high affinity in opiate receptors. Hmm. 
And, and so we published, uh, Mike Wang, uh, my research coordinator, very smart guy, and I published a letter to the editor in response to an article that this person wrote explaining that you know, the, the reasons why we really doubt that this is. But I will tell you, regardless of what people hear, unless they hear that there is a study that was done, this is the part that drives me crazy, is it's kind of like the emperor has no clothes. If you really thought that this was working like an opiate, someone would have tried a trial giving people opiates, comparing their response to this. Nobody has done that. And I think someone has done that, since this guy thinks so highly of that as a theory, he must have tried that. That's the obvious thing to do. But there are no studies showing that opiates have anything like this effect. So, I mean, I think that's pretty definitive. So it's like, uh, what are you going to believe? This expert who's a brilliant guy or your lying eyes is what he wants us to kind of say. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the big problems we face in scientific discourse at this level is that there's not really any filter. I mean, one voice, if it's heavy enough, can sway thousands of counter opinions if people want to believe a certain position right so i I just think that's important for people to know that there's no good evidence that says this is working through that mechanism and if it were why on earth haven't we had someone just try one of those drugs and show that it has the same effects because it doesn't we've been using opiates for seven thousand years we never see these kind of effects yeah just with respect to your research career what have you learned about doing clinical and translational research so far, getting involved with these trials and, and other sort of groundbreaking techniques? Well, wow. what have I learned? So I've learned that it's a sacred trust when people are willing to you know, sign up, uh, usually to help not themselves, you know, maybe themselves, but equally as likely they're going to get a placebo. So they're signing up in hopes that they will get some treatment, but also with the understanding that at least half of the reason they're doing this is, you know, to try to get better treatments. And I've also learned that listening to patients is really critical, that some of the trials that I've done in the past have just come because I listened to patients who said, you know what, when I do this, I get that. And so that led to, you know, a whole investigation of this to see if we got that and how we got that. And one example is Cody Unser, who's part of the race car, the Unser race car, Indianapolis 500 dynasty, who became paralyzed at a young age, said that scuba diving reactivated, you know, sensations she didn't have. So I said, okay, let's test it. And sure enough, we took people scuba diving and they regained sensation and half of them got function back. So, you know, listening to patients, I think is really important. It's something that we do far less of now than we used to. But I think it's really critical if you're going to understand. And then the last thing I think I've learned is that we are only now beginning a new phase of research that's going to be able to use better data. So the whole question is, how do you get good outcome data as to are the treatments working or not? And now, you know, we've got Mood 24-7 that I helped develop. We've got the Dana Cognitive Assessment Tool, but we've got a host of health information technology coming online that will really change the way we practice, but equally as important, the way we can gather data and information to know if these drugs really work or don't work. That's the coming era, and that era has arrived, but I think it's just we're beginning to feel the outcomes of that. In the next you know, few years, it's going to just be a breakout kind of thing of brand new ways of doing studies. 
Sounds like we're getting into an exciting time. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a very exciting time. Even though it's a time where we really need, you know, we're losing the battle against suicide. Again, the rates have gone up threefold in, you know, adolescent girls have gone up 30%. Mm. Suicide's the second leading cause of death between 10 and 34. That's just unacceptable. Wow. So it's just something that we need to realize that it's exciting that we can now really try to address these things. But if we don't take them seriously, they're just going to get worse and worse. That's what we know is happening. So we'll yeah. talk about why they're getting worse maybe at another time. Yeah. Well, Dr. Kaplan, I really appreciate you taking the time to come here and help clear up some of these things. I know this is only one small part of the work you're doing, but I think this is going to be really useful for people to hear about because it does sound like this could change the paradigm and how we deal with depression and the fact that it gives us another option for people who failed ECT. For those of you who aren't aware, ECT is essentially our last step in a lot of cases. That is what we use when our backs are against the wall because not necessarily because of safety issues, but because it is just so intensive compared to giving a medication. Any final thoughts? Just keep doing what you're doing because, you know, I think that very few people know this, but the Latin that the word doctor derives from is actually the same word as docent, someone who teaches about art. So it's teacher and you are a true teacher. So keep teaching. Well, I figure that as providers, we only see patients once in a great while and they're sort of with themselves all the time so if we can teach people how to take better care of their health and understand what options are available to them we can a lot of good i think that's a great idea